This is a special edition of Minnesota Native News, COVID-19 Community Conversations with host Leah Lem. COVID-19 Community Conversations is supported by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Health. Anine, hello. I'm Leah Lem. Miigwech, and thank you for joining me for an in-depth conversation exploring how Indian country in Minnesota is responding and adapting to the current pandemic health crisis. Today on the show, tribes rise to the challenge of the pandemic, and we'll hear from a couple people in the healthcare field who are ensuring tribal community members are getting the care and information they need. Terry Morrison joins me today. Terry has lived and worked on the Boys Fort Reservation for 18 years as a community health nurse. And reporter Melissa Townsend reports on the Indian Health Service's perspective on tribal COVID testing. We'll hear from Daniel Fry, Director of Indian Health Services in the Bemidji area. All that coming up, but first. At the beginning of the pandemic, tribes faced the challenge of the unknown. Helping and caring for community members was and is a priority. Stacy Hammer is the Director of Community Health at the Lower Sioux Healthcare Center. When the pandemic happened, Stacy and her team put their heads together to figure out how to provide support and healthcare and food and other essentials, even as everything was shutting down. I have to say, I think when all of this is said and done, I mean, this could be, you know, a couple of years from now, I think we will in the future run differently. And I think we're seeing where our gaps are, where our needs really were, but we weren't seeing them at the time. And I think now we're definitely seeing them. Um, and so I think after this, I think we're going to be a lot stronger recognizing both the strengths and areas of potential improvement. As Stacey Hammer said, finding the gaps is an opportunity to better serve our communities. As the pandemic continues, so does the work in Indian country. The work at the tribal level continues and grows as well. And joining me now is Terry Morrison. She's been working on the Boys Fort Reservation as a community health nurse and has been in the medical field for 25 years. Terry has had a presence on social media and sharing videos, helping to keep band members up to date, and I've enjoyed watching them as well. So I'm happy to have Terry Morrison here with me today. Fuju and welcome. Fuju, thank you. Can you please take a moment to introduce yourself, your tribal relationship, and your role? Hi, my name is Terry Morrison. I am the lead community health nurse for the Boys Fort Reservation. I have worked here for 18 years. Um, in an evolving position. <laughs> um, I li have lived and worked on the Boys Fort Reservation for the 18 years. My husband and my kids are enrolled Boys Fort band members. So how are you doing, Terry? And how's the family? It's been good. We're sort of in the calm before the storm. Boys Fort has been very quiet. Um, COVID-wise, we've been doing a lot of planning, a lot of meeting a lot of preparing. Can you tell me a bit about your work as the community health nurse at Boys Fort and what does that look like on a daily basis? On a normal daily basis, I do um, WIC appointments. I see a lot of community members for WIC. Um, I supervise the elder programs, which is the community health representatives and the community health nurses. I do a lot of grant work. Um, I'm current, I currently have the Money Follows the Person grant out of DHS. Basically, a lot of emergency preparedness, which is my normal job anyway, and pretty much anything else they can think of. <laughs> so emergency preparedness, how does that work? 
I've been meeting with the regional emergency preparedness coordinators on the public health end for the last 17 years. So we've really been planning and working up to this day. So I think a lot of people think this is really, really new territory, but it's not. Tribes have been involved in the planning for 17 years with the counties. Been planning, especially since 2008, 2009, we've been preparing for um, an outbreak of a viral something of some kind. So we, usually it's the flu, like a new strain of the flu. So we have a lot of plans around the flu vaccine and how we're going to get it out to the community once it's released. So this is sort of along the same lines. Basically, we can use the same plans because it's a res- like a respiratory illness, but it's a whole nother kind that no one has immunity to. So that part's been really interesting. Yeah, I bet. Because, you know, it you know, at the beginning, even the, the experts, right, um, at, at the national level, you know, around the world are unsure of what, what exactly it is, or what exactly to do. Um, so it's been really interesting to see how it all unfolds and, you know, how, how tribes have responded to that too. So right now with the pandemic, it seems to be like a spectrum of concerns. So if there's somebody in good health, how, how do you maintain that good health? And then uh, all the way to if somebody's at risk or has underlying conditions or on the surface conditions, what does that look like for caring for folks all along that spectrum? It's been hard because elders are the highest hit population. Native Americans have the highest uh, mortality rate from um, COVID that we've seen, and especially elder natives. We're doing a lot more calling, talking to people through through the door, a lot more porch meetings. Hmm. I think that's really hard for elders that are used to having twice a week meetings because our community health reps, our CHRs, usually are out seeing the elders one to two times a week in their home, visiting with them, asking how it's going, what they need help with, how they're feeling. And now we're trying to do a lot of that over the phone, which is hard if they're hard of hearing. And then we're encouraging people not to visit elders because we don't want to get them sick. So that has probably been the hardest part. I think a lot of the families understand it, but it's hard on the elder themselves, I think. They're feeling pretty isolated. Yeah, that's we talk about that a lot on this program too. Is um, the the feeling of isolation, and how can we reach out in a way that's safe, uh, safe and responsible uh, to our family members? And you've also done a bit on social media, you know, like some Q and As and stuff like that. Can you talk about the importance of that and how maybe it's been beneficial or what sort of reaction have you gotten? Uh, maybe what have you learned? Sometimes it's hard to relate unless it's someone you know talking about it. Mm. Um, trying to bring it more on the community level here instead of just something that's happening outside in the bigger world. We are, have been really lucky. We've only had one case, and that was almost two months ago, a month and a half ago. So it's hard to keep that level up. Mm-hmm. So we keep trying to 
have different Q&As, the mask information. Um, we're going to reopen our child care and Head Start. And we're planning on having a Q&A with the child care and the Head Start staff so parents can watch and ask questions. And they're going to do a walkthrough of the facility to show what's different and what the parent and the kid might see when they come in. Um, we're just trying to get the most up-to-date information out there from us, not necessarily from MDH or CDC. We do take the um, recommendations from MDH and CDC into account when we're um, making decisions and making policies. We've had very good conversations with the state. They're very willing to assist us with information, the most up-to-date that they have. So it has been a very helpful relationship. Yeah, that's really, that's, that seems like such a big deal. You know, like, who are you more likely to listen to? You know, and if it comes from a trusted person from the community, that, that seems like that would be a, a really significant uh, way to get information, which, which kind of leads into my next question. Uh, we talk a lot about taking the pandemic, taking the virus very seriously. You know, we've talked about uh, respecting the virus as a spirit, making adaptations, which is something Native people have been doing forever. Uh, and so following guidelines from the tribes and the state and the CDC, but there's also this worry and the sense that there's also in our communities people who just don't take it very seriously at the same time. Um, and how do you reach folks who maybe just aren't interested in, in hearing the information? We just keep trying. <laughs> you keep trying to get it out in a different manner. MDH has posted quite a few Native-based flyers, so we've been trying to share those in the language, trying to make it more real to them and relating it back to that we don't want to get our aunties or cousins or grandmas or moms or dads or grandpas sick. That's been my push. The majority of people that work with us are healthier and younger, but you don't want to take it home to someone. So that's kind of been our hard, that's been my hard push that we really don't want to take it home to the people that are going to get sicker than us. Yeah. Is it hard? Like you mentioned there, you've had one case. Mm -hmm. What do you attribute keeping it to one case to? What do you attribute that to? Myself and Terry Defoe, one of the other community health nurses, are trained on the case investigation and the contact tracing. We have the um, point of care testing, the Abbott machine, so we can have results on average in about 15 minutes. Mm. So we could contact the case and the family members and everyone right away instead of waiting the three to four days that it's taking the, um, the lab result to get into the Minnesota Department of Health website and then to get assigned out. We're doing testing and everything right here. So we get it immediately. And then we can talk to the family and anyone that they've had contact with immediately and have them quarantined. So we've, we've been very, very lucky in that, that we have that here. We can do the testing here and then we can address the case investigation and everything right here. It must be kind of a relief or at least like such a positive thing that that you're able to do that with at Boys Fort. It has helped a lot. We 
are sending out some send out tests because the recommendations have changed back and forth on the point of care testing. Um, if that's accurate, we're still sending out to the mail ones that have the really indicative symptoms, such as loss of um, taste or smell, fever, cough. If we can't explain it by anything else, if they've tested negative for strep, if they've tested negative for flu, they've tested negative for a point of care, um, we'll do a send out to the mail. And that right now is three to five days wait. It was seven to nine, which is a long time. But we are pretty lucky that that's our turnaround time, that we've had the shorter point of care testing. Is it hard to have it hit home? when it doesn't, it seems like less of an immediate issue, even though it could very easily be an immediate issue quickly? I don't want to say that there was panic, but that really hit. Mm-hmm. People were like, oh, this is really real. I actually know someone. This is in my community. Um, there was a lot of, we've already gave the information, but we had to give it again because mm-hmm. they weren't really listening the first time because it didn't apply if that makes sense. Mm. Um, I think when you do have a case that's close, it's fearful, right? Mm -hmm. It's the unknown. They don't really know what's going to happen. We've never heard of it before. Like you said, it brings it more applies to them. Mm -hmm. So we found that a lot. We put out a lot of information, but until it affects the community directly, they're not really hearing it. So then you have to put it out again. Gotcha. And so masks, of course, is a really hot topic. Uh, Wearing a mask has, for some reason, become pretty political. Um, I've seen some online retailers creating masks and selling them that are just like fishnet or lace or something that is kind of, kind of, (laughs) I don't know, technically fits the requirement for wearing a mask, but is clearly like mocking uh, the mandate. Uh, Can you briefly speak to the benefits of wearing a mask and maybe some tips for people who don't like them? So I usually explain it that the medical field has been using masks for a very long time. Um, You will never have a surgery where not everyone in the room is wearing one. Um, We've been using it for isolation and quarantine when we've transported people in the hospital. Um, Masks are effective. They're effective at source control. So I usually tell people, I'm not wearing this mask for me. I'm wearing this mask for you. So I don't want to be the one that spreads it. And that's usually my push for my staff and the people that we work with. No one wants to be the one that gave it to everyone. And if I cannot be the one just by wearing a mask, then that's something I'm willing to do to protect the community. You're listening to a special edition of Minnesota Native News, COVID-19 Community Conversations, supported by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Health. I'm Leah Lem. With me today is Terry Morrison, and we're talking about her work as a community health nurse at Boys Fort. 
And tribes have faced challenges with the pandemic, but there are many ways in which they're strengthening and innovating and caring for and reaching their communities. Now we're going to add another voice to the conversation. Our reporter recently talked with Daniel Fry, the director of Indian Health Services in the Bemidji area. That area includes Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and the urban center of Chicago. He talked about the issues with supplying COVID-19 tests to tribes. And there's a lot of concern about being able to get a test and get the results quickly so we can quarantine those who test positive and stop the spread to vulnerable populations. Reporter Melissa Townsend tells us more. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, Fry says Indian Health Service, tribal, and urban Indian clinics in this region have tested 30% of the American Indian population here. That's roughly 30,000 people. Specifically in Beltrami County, which includes many members of three Anishinaabe tribes, Red Lake, White Earth, and Leech Lake, Fry says in the first four months of the pandemic, there were only 30 positive cases. But since June, that number has taken a huge jump. There are now more than 260 positive cases. The virus has indeed come to northern Minnesota's tribal lands. Fry says that's partly because of COVID fatigue. You know, you go back to when we were on lockdown. That's really when everyone was being really vigilant. It was all new. Uh, And then time went on. People got a little uh, hesitant uh, to continue the lockdown. So we started going out. The restaurants opened. The bars opened. And now we're seeing this shift. The age of folks that are getting COVID-19, more so in that 20 to 39-year-old range. Are those individuals still staying away from Vulnerable populations, are they practicing social distancing? They're all new questions that we're, we're still trying to figure out. And for the U.S. seeing nearly 70,000 new cases per day, that, that's not a position we want to be in. And we'll just have to continue to do what we can individually and move forward. To be effective at tracking and containing the virus, you have to be able to identify the people who have it and trace all their contacts, a practice called contact tracing. But Fry says because of the way testing is going, contact tracing is really challenging. You know, the important part of the contact tracing is that you have those results as quickly as possible. What we're seeing now with the increased number of cases in the country, we're starting to see that delay in test results coming in when you use a reference lab. And if you get a test result seven days after the fact and you're positive, it's very difficult to begin the contact tracing there if it's seven days ago and that person hasn't been quarantining. And that's why it's important that if you suspect that you have COVID-19 or you've been in contact with someone that has COVID-19 and you go get a test and it's going to be a number of days before you get the result, uh, the, the best advice is just to stay home until you get those results because you don't know if you're out there spreading it or not if you don't know if you have the virus. Uh, So just the the self-isolation and the quarantining uh, will allow you to at least know that if it comes back positive, you haven't been too many places or you haven't been anywhere, ideally. Fry says the amount of time it takes to get your COVID-19 test result depends on the lab who's running the test. Like Sanford's doing a nice job because their reference lab is in Sioux Falls, uh, South Dakota. They ship them right to there. If you use someone like Quest, who is a, uh, um, who's a national corporation, private corporation, Sometimes we're seeing seven to nine days. Uh, one tribe in, Min- in Min- Michigan had reported a 10 to 12 day uh, wait on their tests. The tribes in Minnesota have a state grant to work with the Mayo Clinic. But Fry says those wait times can reach up to seven days. And that's just because of the large volume. You're trying to run these tests 
Uh, there's only so many people that can do it and get the turnaround. He says the best case is if you can get the rapid response test or point of care test. Those tests are processed right on the spot and you get the results usually within a half an hour. That's why those, those point of care tests are so important because they give you an immediate result, but they're just in limited supply because those companies, Abbott, Cepheid, uh, other companies that are trying to create these platforms, they don't have huge mass production lines. So they're changing all of their production uh, on the fly so that they can meet the demand countrywide, nationwide, uh, and it, it still takes some time. Bemidji Area Indian Health Services Director Daniel Fry says clinics in his IHS area are doing a good job providing rapid response tests with one limitation. For the most part, you can go to any tribal site uh, here in the Bemidji region between the three states uh, and you can get a rapid test. You can get it right there on site because uh, HHS and IHS have made sure that we've got those machines, the Abbott ID Nows or the Cepheid out to these rural locations so that they can test on site. But the problem with that is there, there's still only so many tests that are available. Uh, IHS gets uh, 30,000 tests a week. Uh, that's where we're at right now. And so that has to be distributed throughout throughout the country. And that's just because, you know, if you talk to Abbott, you know, Abbott's saying we don't have enough to be able to produce for everyone across the country. So until they can ramp up their, their testing and their production. In addition to companies ramping up their supply of rapid response tests, there's also the question of where in the country those tests are sent. So you, you try to track where the hotspots are, and that's where you focus the testing. And then from there, you want to make sure that all tribes have the ability to test, and then you want to concentrate the, the, the higher number of tests to where those hotspots exist so that you can identify the virus, do the contact tracing immediately, and then be able to flatten that curve in those specific locations, which is what they're doing uh, down in Navajo area and the Phoenix region. Uh, the, white, uh, the White Mountain Apaches have been a, a hard hit spot. Um, so I feel for them and, and I'm happy that they're, they're starting to get that, that virus uh, under control. The system was not built for this mass production and we just deal with what comes to us to the best of our ability. And then I just continue to relay that information to the tribes uh, especially the health directors each week when I meet with them is, you know, here's here's the ground level truth. Here's what we have. Here's the priority. And we'll ship them out and we'll, we'll do it as the test kits continue to come in. Daniel Fry, head of the Bemidji Area Indian Health Services, says he's in constant contact with the tribes to stay on top of what they need for testing. I'm submitting my requests to IHS, HHS every week. Here are the, the, the uh, test kits that I'm requesting, and this is based on talking to the tribes to see what do they need. You know, how many did they use last week? You know, how many do they have uh, in stock in case they have an outbreak and how many can they use? Uh, what's their ability to test via reference labs? What's the reference lab turnaround time? There's a lot of moving parts, uh, but for the most part, what we need is more tests at least for those point of care machines, which is all these companies are trying to create them now so that we can do more rapid testing. Minnesota U.S. Senator Tina Smith has been quite critical of the federal government's delivery of COVID-related assistance to tribes. As of last month, she says there were still federal funds tied up at the regional IHS office, and those funds were meant to help tribes pay for testing. Daniel Fry says he thinks that money is probably held up in tribal legal departments because of the way the federal legislation was written. So the only thing that, that she's likely referring to, and without the specifics, would come from the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, the funds that are still not pushed out to the tribes. And that's only because the statutory regulation within those funds 
require that there was a bilateral agreement, which means we sign and then we send it to the tribes and then the tribes have to actually sign the agreement as well and then propose a budget to IHS for us to push out those funds. Now that was actually written into the legislation uh, when Congress passed the law or the, the act so that they could push out those dollars. Uh, so our job from the area office is to provide technical assistance to the tribes. But what happens when we send anything new to the tribes, it always ends up in their legal departments. So they can go through it and make sure that they know what they're signing. And that's what we see uh, right now is we reach out to the tribes. Uh, we're waiting for the bilateral agreement to come back. And, we're, and then they let us know that what's well, illegal is coming back. But uh, from our perspective, we're ready to push out that money. We're just waiting for those agreements to go between the tribes. And, you know, with 34 tribes, it, it, is, it does take a lot of coordination and each tribe moves at a, at a different pace. There are many requirements to access the federal money that was granted to tribes back in March to get more COVID-19 testing. But as the number of positive COVID-19 cases in Minnesota continues to increase and school is about to begin, the need for testing will grow even greater. That was reporter Melissa Townsend talking with the director of the IHS Bemidji Area Office, Daniel Fry. And here with me is Terry Morrison, community health nurse at Boys Fort. Terry, do you have an initial reaction to the conversation we just heard? I think the the COVID fatigue mm-hmm. is a real thing for our community and the community the communities surrounding the reservation. Um, they think that we've done this long enough. And not necessarily the Boys Fort community, but the communities around us. And and not everyone. I think it's just a, the select few. And they want to get back to their normal. And I don't think we're going to get back to our normal for at least another year. This is definitely a marathon, not a sprint, um, until we can figure out how deadly this really is um, for our communities. Then we need to try to protect them as much as we can. That's and and that's a hard sell when people just want to be able to go out and do what they want to do. Yeah, yeah, that was a big thing, you know. So Melissa and Daniel Fry talked about the COVID fatigue right away, uh, and just <laughs> people getting tired of taking the precautions, mm-hmm. being super vigilant. I know. I every once in a while, I'm like. I feel I understand. I empathize with that with that feeling, though I I I put on my logic hat and continue from yep. there to you know for the benefit of the community. Is there anything you'd recommend for folks who are exhausted? I think they see the low numbers um, or the lower numbers, and they keep comparing it to the flu. But the flu has a season where it kind of goes away. This COVID does not. A lot of people thought it would go away this summer. It hasn't gone away. It's just grown stronger when we release release the um, the restrictions from the state. I keep saying that so our social distancing is working. That's why it's lower numbers. Thank you so much for joining me today, Terry Morrison. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk and give us your perspective. It's been lovely. Miigwech. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening today. Miigwech. 
And a big thank you to all the healthcare workers out there who are helping us stay healthy and informed. There's so much information out there to sort through, so thank you for keeping us up to date. Miigwech, and I wish you health. I'm Leah Lem. Minnesota Native News Special Edition COVID-19 Community Conversations is supported by the Minnesota Department of Health.